0: presenting this month's special series, Focus on Children's Health, Unreach MD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Your host is Dr. Bruce Bloom, President and Chief Science Officer of Partnership for Cures. Only a few years ago, familial dysautonomia was a fatal disease, but some rediscovery research from the FD lab at Fordham University is turning this killer into a chronic manageable disease. What have we learned from familial dysautonomia research, and how might this help patients with other diseases? Joining me to provide an update on current FD research and treatment is Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University. Dr. Rubin, thank you for joining us, and welcome back to ReachMD.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Bloom. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: So give us a little bit of background on familial dysautonomia. What kind of gene defect is it, and what kind of impact does it have in utero and after birth?
1: Familial dysautonomia is a disorder of the autonomic nervous system that affects the development and survival of various neurons. Individuals with familial dysautonomia have symptoms that one would expect from somebody who has a deficit in their autonomic nervous system. The mutation that causes familial dysautonomia was identified approximately 10 years ago. It turns out that this mutation is in a gene called IKBCAP, which has really no significance to familial dysautonomia. The name of that gene is quite irrelevant to the disorder itself. The mutation in IKBCAP, or ICAP as we like to call it, is an unusual mutation, It is a mutation that is occurring in a location that is not in the coding sequence of the gene. It's a mutation that occurs in an intronic sequence next to the coding part of the gene. And what this mutation does is it alters the splicing or the processing of this gene so that the individuals who are homozygous for this mutation are unable to form adequate amounts of this protein
0: product. Tell us a little bit about the research that you undertook, oh, three to five years ago or longer that increased the ICAP for FD patients and how you went about that research.
1: Our work with familial dysautonomia started with the identification of the mutation responsible for familial dysautonomia. This mutation is in a sequence adjacent to an exon that plays a role in the regulation of the splicing or the processing of this transcript. What we noted early on when working with cells from individuals with familial dysautonomia is that this mutation was not a mutation that completely blocked the production of the transcript. In fact, this type of mutation we refer to as a leaky mutation. Some functional transcript is, in fact, produced in cells from individuals with familial dysautonomia. Noting the leaky nature of this mutation, we wondered whether exposure to various compounds could alter the splicing process, whereby we could increase the amount of the functional transcript that would be produced in cells derived from individuals with familial dysautonomia, and then eventually with individuals who have familial dysautonomia.
0: So your job was to try and increase the leakiness?
1: That's exactly right. We wanted to increase the leakiness so that more would leak through in a functional manner.
0: And how much does the average FD patient have of functional protein to start with?
1: We would estimate that they have about 10% or maybe even somewhat less than 10% of what an individual who is not carrying this mutation would have.
0: So you started scanning some compounds. Which ones did you look at, and how did you identify them?
1: We gathered up many different compounds in the laboratory, those that would be characterized as pharmaceuticals and those that would be characterized as nutraceuticals. And we treated familial dysautonomia cells with these compounds and monitored the production of the functional transcript and protein in these cells. And we identified various compounds that were able to increase the production of the functional transcript in these cells.
0: So what were the first couple that you found, and did they work in the same way?
1: So the first one that we identified was a vitamin E family member. The molecule is known as tocotrienols. This is different than the commonly consumed vitamin E, which is the tocopherols. The first one we identified was the tocotrienols which had an unusual ability, what it was able to do is increase the amount of the transcript produced in the FD or familial dysautonomia cells. So in effect, what would happen is if you can imagine that 10% of the molecules were generated in the proper manner if we could increase the amount of the total production of this gene product, we would have 10% of a larger number being produced in these individuals. So essentially what the tocotrienols did is it increased transcription of this gene. And because of the leaky nature of the gene, the amount of the gene product, the functional gene product, went up in the cells of individuals with FD.
0: Does the dysfunctional protein have any negative consequences in the patient?
1: It appears that this functional protein has no effect whatsoever in the patients.
0: So what was the next compound and how did that work?
1: So the next compound that we found was one that actually changed the splicing event. So it facilitated the production of a functional transcript.
0: And what was that compound?
1: This compound is known as epigallocatechin gallate. We refer to it as EGCG is actually something that is present in a variety of foods, including green tea.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to a Focus on Children's Health, part of our monthly specialty series on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom. With us is Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Laboratory for Familial Dysautonomia Research at Fordham University, We're discussing breakthroughs in familial dysautonomia research that are saving lives of children with this devastating disease. So now we've got a couple of natural compounds, tocotrienols and EGCG. What was the next thing? I understand it was another natural compound.
1: So as we continue to hunt for compounds that will impact the level of this functional gene product, we continue to scan large numbers and large banks of compounds. And interestingly enough, the most recent finding we had identified that vitamin A and provitamin A's have the ability to increase the rate of transcription of the ICAP gene working somewhat like the tocotrienols works and thereby increases the amount of the functional gene product that is produced in FD-derived cells.
0: Can a patient take all three of these compounds at the same time?
1: They actually are taking all three of these compounds at the same time. The children started off taking the tocotrienols because that was the first item identified, and then they added to their repertoire the EGCG, which they take in the form of green tea, and this most recent addition of vitamin A or beta-carotene is added to that repertoire.
0: So your latest breakthrough in familial dysautonomia research sounds like a Sherlock Holmes story with lots of sleuthing related to a single patient. Can you fill us in on this fascinating story?
1: This story, and I appreciate your characterization of fascinating because it truly is, this story actually began several years ago. When we were trying to understand why these children have periods of what we call hypertensive crisis, these periods are frightening events. The children's blood pressure reach levels that have caused strokes in some children. And the trigger for this was unknown. Having had contact with numerous patients who had these ongoing events, we began to interview them to ask them questions about their diet and their lifestyle in relation to the timing of these hypertensive crises. And after doing some reasonable investigation, it occurred to us that the trigger for crisis could be a compound known as tyramine which is commonly present in certain foods. The processing of tyramine in one's body is done by a molecule called monamine oxidase. Monamine oxidase converts the tyramine into a non-toxic component in you and I. We wondered whether individuals with familial dysautonomia might have a deficit in their ability to process tyramine, And therefore, what we did is we set about to investigate the level of monamine oxidase in patients with familial dysautonomia. And to our surprise, we found that their levels of monamine oxidase are far lower than they are in control individuals. This suggested to us that their hypertensive crises may be due to exposure to tyramine. As we continued to follow this train of thought and as we continue to get further reports on hypertensive crises in these children with familial dysautonomia we could see a direct correlation between the ingestion of tyramine containing foods and the precipitation of these hypertensive crises
0: And so you've devised a diet that would be tyramine free or tyramine preventive for these patients and how has that worked?
1: We have had experience crisis almost on a weekly basis that have now gone for several years without hypertensive crisis.
0: Right. Totally changes their lives, right?
1: Absolutely. I have a young fellow that I've been following now for about 10 years. Mom called me the other day and said hypertensive crisis is not anything that they think about anymore in the house. He has not had a hypertensive crisis at this point in years.
0: Now, you had a patient recently or somebody that you were familiar with that even though they seemed to be on a tyramine-free diet, they were still having hypertensive crises. So what did you do and what did you find out?
1: This case was extremely frustrating to us. This was a child who has been following our protocol in that he has been taking the tocotrienols and the EGCG and he has been maintaining a low tyramine diet. He had been doing well for several years, and about a year ago, he started having crises on a regular basis. It had completely compromised his life. He was no longer able to go to school. He was no longer able to participate in normal family functions. And it was compromising his life and the life of his entire family.
0: And so what did you do to figure this out?
1: Well, we said to ourselves in the lab that we know that tyramine is a trigger for hypertensive crisis. And we know he is not ingesting any tyramine. So the question obviously was, where's the tyramine coming from? And one day it occurred to us, we wondered whether it was possible that he was generating the tyramine in his intestinal tract as a function of the organisms that are living in his intestinal tract.
0: And what did you find out?
1: Well, Calling the mom and finding out that this child had been on very high-dose antibiotics prior to the onset of this long period of hypertensive crisis suggested to us that, in fact, he might have a condition which is known as dysbiosis, which is a dysregulation or an abnormal arrangement of organisms in his digestive system. Tyramine is a product of the amino acid tyrosine, and tyrosine is ingested in the form of protein. And so what we suggested was that the child not eat protein or eat a limited amount of protein for a 72-hour period to see whether or not that would reduce the availability of tyrosine to the organisms in his gut and thereby eliminate their ability to produce tyramine.
0: And the answer was?
1: The answer was 72 hours later, he was crisis-free, and he has remained crisis-free for over half a year. Now, obviously, he is back on protein because one cannot be on a no-protein diet for an extended period of time. But now what he adheres to is the recommended daily allowance of protein. Typically, children with familial dysautonomia parents want to feed them well and will give them excessive amounts of protein. He is now on the recommended daily allowance of protein and he is back in school participating in life fully.
0: I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Barish Rubin, professor in the Department of Biological Sciences and head of the Familial Dysautonomia Laboratory at Fordham University, for talking to us about some fascinating research that's actually making an impact the lives of patients with familial dysautonomia. Thank you, Dr. Rubin. Thank you very much, Dr. Bloom, for the opportunity. You've been listening to Focus on Children's Health on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or any program in the Focus on Children's Health series, please visit us at ReachMD.com.